Heavenly Father, we humbly offer these tithes and offerings back to You as our God and our King, our provider. And we pray that You would be pleased to use uh, this and us uh, and the spread of Your kingdom. In Christ's name, Amen. We are uh, continuing our way through Genesis. Uh, We'll take a break next week uh, and be in Matthew uh, for Christmas morning, but we're going to continue our way through this first book of the Bible. Uh, This morning we're going to be in uh, chapter 31 again. Uh, Find that on page 25 if you want to follow through in one of the Bibles there uh, in front of you. but uh, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but uh, for, for college, I went to, to NC State, the home of the Wolfpack. Uh, but growing up, I was not an NC State fan at all. In fact, I, I pulled for the University of North Carolina Tar Heels, our, our dreaded rival. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, like I, I, my friends behind me in church, they... they his parents went to state. He ended up going to state before me. And uh, I never dreamed that I would pull for the, the wolf pack. But uh, after getting accepted and becoming uh, uh, a student at NC State, uh, my allegiances had to change. Because I quickly realized that you cannot go to NC State and pull for the Tar Heels. It just doesn't work like that. Uh, you, uh, your allegiances must be set aside and you just do not pull for your rival. Uh, it doesn't matter who they're playing. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people would say, even if uh, you know, this is, you know, historically going back, they're like, even if they, if they were, you know, when Russia was the big bad people in all the movies and stuff, it's like, even if the Tars were playing Russia, we would still pull for Russia. Uh, um, but it, it surprised me, though, that, because I've never pulled for the Tar Heels again. In fact, I went from loving them to, to hating them. But I would still see people around campus wearing UNC t-shirts. That just I was like, what are you thinking? There would, there would even be times where when NC State was playing Chapel Hill, whether it be football or basketball, everybody would go to the games and there would be a kid you knew he wasn't visiting from out of town. This is a kid who sat next to you in class. He was in the NC State student section cheering and pulling for the Tar Heels. And I'm thinking, this doesn't work. Don't you realize, like, there, there's one team you pull for when you go to this school, and it's the Wolfpack. Now, there are exceptions. Once your team isn't performing as they should, which a lot of times happened for the Wolfpack when I was there, then you are allowed to pull for other teams. You're allowed to pull for your conference, the ACC. Um, and you especially pull for any team that's playing Chapel Hill. Uh, but once you're out of the tournament, if you did it, if you happen to even make it, you, do, you can pull for the ACC. Then is a time where you're allowed to pull for those who are in your conference. And... But even if Chapel Hill makes it to the championship game, you are never, ever allowed to pull for or root for your rival. It just doesn't work like that. Well, uh, it's interesting as we look at, uh, at the Bible 
and the God that is being revealed to us through these books of Genesis. And uh, as we're looking at what it looks like to follow him, remember we were created to worship and to have a relationship and fellowship with him, but we rebelled against him. And, and competing desires and interests and gods began to creep into the thinking and minds of the people of this world. And what we're going to see as we begin to look in this chapter is uh, what it means to follow the God of the Bible is to follow him alone. There is one true and living God. And if we're going to follow him, we must put aside all previous allegiances, all competing gods and, and desires. You see, unlike the wolf pack, God isn't in a conference of gods. There is no scenario where it's okay if he's not performing the way you want him to, to begin to pull for some other gods. He is in a conference of one. There is one true and living God. All others are false. And he says, to follow me, you must trust and hope in me alone. There is no wearing uh, other God t-shirts around his campus. Uh, so, if you would, let's look and see at, uh, in chapter 31, as uh, the scriptures encourage us to look and hope in him, as we look into our own hearts, as we look at, uh, at God and who he is. So if you would, uh, turn to uh, chapter 31, we're going to pick up in verse uh, 17. Um, remember where we left off last week, uh, uh, Jacob and Laban were having this uh, uh, wage battle about how Jacob was going to be uh, provided for as he's seeking to go back to the land that God promised and called him to with goats and sheep and all of this. And now uh, uh, Jacob and his uh and Rachel and Leah have decided that now is the time to go. And so this is the account of them uh, preparing and leaving and getting away from Laban and leaving uh, Haran and going back to the promised land. And so we'll pick up here in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen uh, pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? 
Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live here. There shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us too. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by a wild beast, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these daughters? For these my daughters are for their children whom they have borne. Come now. Let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, Yahweh watched between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. The heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me uh, to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Abraham swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your, uh, your word. We thank you for 
communicating and revealing Yourself to Your people. God the Spirit, we pray this morning You would open up our hearts. Apply this living and active and true Word to us, Your people, that we might see and cling to You uh, and rest and trust in Jesus alone. Uh, It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Um, So in this passage, uh, God is is calling and encouraging His people to follow and cling and depend and rest on Him alone. Um, It's interesting. We'll we'll, we'll actually look at the the end of the chapter to set the the scene um, before we work our way back to the the rest of it. But notice, uh, after Laban kind of gives up on trying to to get the the stuff back from Jacob, he he decides that he wants to enter into this, this covenant with um, with Jacob in verses uh, 43 and, and following. And the, the way that they go about setting up this covenant, I don't know if you, if you noticed it, but, but Jacob takes one stone to set up uh, for his part of the covenant, a stone and a pillar, and he sets it up. And, and so it's on his side where Jacob is. And those Laban and the other kinsmen on their side set up a heap of stones. Now, the way covenants worked is when you were setting them up, usually there were witnesses that that uh, presided over the making of the covenant to make sure that the agreement was 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 maintained. And a lot of times the witnesses to these covenants were the gods of the people who were entering into the covenant. So it's interesting that Jacob, when he sets up his witness, it is one witness, one stone, one pillar. But Laban and the rest of the, the, the kinsmen from, who are coming from Haran who have pursued Jacob, they set up uh, multiple stones as, wit- as witness to this, this covenant. And even in the language that they use to, uh, to describe it, notice what, what Laban says when he's, he's pledging down here in verse 53. He says, The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. Uh, remember, that was... Uh, Abraham's grand, uh, brother, grand, and uh, I believe it was his brother. This is Laban's dad, and the God of their father, which would have been Terah, uh, judge between you and us. Uh, and then it says, "So then Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac." So Laban, as he's thinking about who's going to preside over this, he's calling out many different gods: the God of of Abraham. Uh, but then he also references the God of Nahor, Abraham's brother, Laban's dad, and then the gods of uh, their father, Terah. Remember what we, we talked about before. Abraham was redeemed and saved out of a, a community and a group that worshipped the sun gods, or the moon gods, I mean. Uh, so Laban still here is worshipping these other gods. And this, this division is set up of Jacob and those who are following and with him, who God has said, I am with you and I'm leading you to my land, is the ones who are set up and recognized by this one pillar. The others are set up and they're recognized as following and depending on many multiple gods. Uh, so there's a, there's a contrast and a distinction that is being made between Laban and Jacob. This is you and the God you are following. You stay over there. This is the God that these are the gods that we are following. We are going to stay over here. You don't cross it. You don't cross this line and come and harm us. And we won't come over and cross you. There's a distinction being made. Laban recognizes it and Jacob recognizes it. 
We worship and call out upon the one true God. You worship many gods. Those who are going to be a part of the line of Jacob, who are following the God that has called him, will worship one true God. There is no other option. So look at how that then plays out and what has gone on in the rest of the, the chapter. If we begin to think about this, if that is true, what it means to follow God is to be ones who depend and rest upon him alone, the one true God, then we are being called, if we see and understand ourselves, who are trusting or relying upon what we just sung this morning. Born this day, the king of Israel. Jesus, the promised one, the one that we have hoped for, has come from the line of Jacob, whose name later will be changed to Israel. We're trusting and relying upon him alone. Uh, Then uh, we want to look at and see how does the scriptures in this passage in particular begin to shape and encourage us to hope in this one true God and him alone. The first thing that we see is that we should trust in this one true and living God. Because he can be trusted. He can be trusted. Notice back, and even if we uh, look back to, to this account and how Jacob, even last week, we saw him recounting to Leah and Rachel. Back up in verse, in verse 3 of, of chapter 31, um, Moses says, as, uh, uh, as, as God appears to Jacob, and it says in verse 2 and verse 3, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then Yahweh said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, and I will be with you. Here, remember, what we, uh, that, when you see those capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, or capital G, capital O, capital D in the Old Testament, it's referring and designating the covenant name of God, the covenant making and keeping God, who is faithful to his promises. He made these promises to Abraham and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and he's in the process of fulfilling them. So when God appears to Jacob, he appears to him with his name that he's designated to his people of being this covenant, faithful God, one that you can trust, who keeps his promises. Here he's appeared to Jacob and is reminding Jacob in verse 3, go back to the land that I promised, that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, and I've said that I'm going to give to you. Notice how this, this faithfulness and God's faithfulness to his promises continues to come out throughout this uh, passage. Um, in verse 5, and this, we'll, we'll see this language comes, comes up over and over. Jacob says, the God of my father has been with me. Down in, cha- in verse 29 is this continued designation. It was in my power to do you harm, Laban says to Jacob, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In verse 42, Jacob says this to Laban as he's uh, talking about the injustice he's experienced. Verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then again, in verse 53, it comes up again. The God of Abraham, 
the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. This covenant faithfulness comes up over and over again. I am the God of your father. What did, the, what did God promise your father? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be God to you, and I'm going to be God to your children. I'm going to bring about these promises to bless you and to use you in this world, to bring about blessing, and through you, this promised one is going to come, who is going to redeem and renew and restore all things. So far, we've been going through three generations, and God promised Jacob that when he left Israel, when he left the promised land, I mean, to go to Haran, God said, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to bring you back. And here, what is this passage continuing to show us? God is being faithful. You can trust Him. He's the God of your Father. And He's been, He is your God now. He is with you. You can hope in Him and trust in Him. But not just that. In light of His covenant faithfulness, how is God responding? Throughout this passage, as Jacob reiterates and communicates, not just to Leah and to Rachel, but to Laban, he goes back over and over again about how his God acts and he works in light of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness in the lives of his people. Over and over, Jacob says that God saw injustice and he acted. God heard Jacob's cry and he did something about it. He listened. Uh, Even places where God... In in this passage specifically, he sees and he acts directly. Look in verse 36, uh, where Jacob becomes uh, um, angry. Uh, It's not verse 36. It's uh, uh, verse 29, where God acts. Laban acknowledges this. And it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night. You be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Uh, God sees what's going on and he acts and he does something. Why does he act? Well, this language that's described about what Laban's doing, where it says back up in verse 22, that when Laban heard about it on the third day that Jacob had fled, in verse 23, it continues, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, followed close after him into the hill country. That language is, is, is using military-type language. Laban is gathering up an army. He is on his way with the intention to destroy Jacob. In fact, Laban even communicates to Jacob, do you not realize I have the power to do you harm? But God appeared and he said, don't mess with him. God sees and God acts. Even Jacob says this in verse 42, look, you've, you've been mistreating me You've been doing me harm for, uh, for 20 years, more than 20 years. And this whole time, verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and he rebuked you last night. This God is faithful. He He isn't aloof and absent, but he sees and he responds and he acts in response to his promises in the lives of his people. And even more than that, uh, uh, the ways that God does it, sometimes he, he is acting specifically, as we've seen in this passage, and appearing to Laban and holding his hand back and directly warning him. But in other places, we see God even commanding his angels to come 
to carry out his work in the world. Uh, earlier in, uh, in chapter uh, 31, um, in verse 11, it's the angel of God that appears and speaks to Jacob. As we close out this passage, just after Laban's army has come to seek after, uh, after Jacob, Jacob goes on his way, it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 32, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called that place, the name of that place, Manahim. Remember this, this camp language, the camp of an army. And so God has his soldiers here going out to protect, to guard, to act and work in his world. Uh, Moses is piling these, these um, details and these facts up over and over and over again in this passage to remind us there is one true and living God that we must trust him and him alone. Why? Because he can be trusted. I don't know if uh, you've been paying much attention to, to the news lately, or uh, we might could call it the fake news. There's been more and more of these reports of fake news coming out and people responding to this news in significant ways. Uh, there were some things going on about a, a pizza shop up in D.C., and a man actually from New York went up and, uh, I mean, from North Carolina went up uh, in response to this fake news article and uh, uh, began to, to go in and do something about the, the crimes that he thought were being committed there. Uh, more recently, there was a story that was going around, uh, uh, not just, I saw it on Facebook, but it was happening on television news and in the newspaper about uh, uh, a man who, uh, who plays Santa during Christmas. And he had gotten a, a call from a nurse friend of his at a, at a hospital that a, a five-year-old boy was dying. And he was, the little boy was afraid and was concerned that he was going to miss out on Christmas. And so the nurse called this, this Santa, and he, this, this guy named was Eric Marzen, and he came to meet with the boy. And uh, he asked the family and everybody to leave because he said, if you're in here, it's going to make me cry. And he went down and he sat with the boy and he had a present for the boy that the family had for him. And he sat and he talked with him and he encouraged him and he, and he hugged and he held the boy. And the little boy died in his arms. And then uh, uh, the family came in and, and Santa left. And this, this news story spread around and people were overcome with with emotion from hearing this story. It was on CNN and it was on, uh, you know, like Good Morning America and uh, it originated out of East Tennessee in this Knoxville newspaper. Well, recently what's come out is that everybody who's released the story previously is now releasing statements saying we can never, we can neither affirm nor deny whether this really happened or factual or the, the details started not matching up. People weren't corroborating it. They couldn't find other witnesses. It was just his word. They couldn't find a boy who died during that time. They couldn't find a hospital that even had a Santa show up. Uh, they interviewed his wife, and she said it happened in October. He said it happened in November. And now all of this uh, news that came out, you wonder, is it reliable or not? Now, that's something that we need to consider. Because sometimes we can respond to good news that happens to be fake 
in significant and profound ways. And if later we find out and we act in ways that uh, to what we found out we thought was true, but it turns out to be false, uh, then it can cause big issues. It can begin to cause issues of trust and whether you can rely on this. Maybe it re- results in anger. We need to, we need to, to know that. Is, is this ancient fake news? Is Moses just writing and coming up with something to make the people of Israel or other leaders feel good so that they'll respond in trusting this God? Because, you know, Moses does have an agenda. He needs to get these people to follow him and and lead them out of, of Egypt. So, I mean, what better story to come up with than than a God who can overpower the Egyptians and lead you out. And so I need to, to work up a backstory so that you'll trust and rely on me and you'll act in response to this news and do something. Is it, is it fake? What, if, what have we seen as the Scriptures begin to unfold? It's, it's not just here in this passage, but the promises and the, the Word of this God continues to carry out. Israel actually was delivered from Egypt. It wasn't a fake God who showed up. Egypt was destroyed and the people who were slaves were brought out by the mighty hand and power of God. He delivered them out of Egypt and they continued on. He built, he appeared to them on this mountain. It wasn't just a myth. Uh, Moses didn't have a light and a thunder and a fog and a sound machine up on Mount Sinai. God appeared. This nation grew and developed. Kings came from this nation that actually God had promised Abraham. And later, this seemingly insignificant little kid would be born to a, an unwed mother. And this one little boy would, would grow up to cause a lot of trouble in that region of, of Palestine and in Israel. In fact, he would be crucified because he was claiming to be God who had entered into the flesh. This God that Moses talked about, Jesus, the little boy said, oh, you know, Moses was writing about me. You see, when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He rose. Confirming that the news that Moses spoke about wasn't fake news. It was true, real authentic, verifiable news that the God who revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and who has kept his promises to come and enter into this world is trustworthy. You can trust and rely on him. In fact, one of Jesus' followers wrote this in uh, John uh, in chapter 5 of his letter of First uh, John writes this to people who are wondering about the trustworthiness of this testimony. He says this, uh, beginning in um, in chapter five and verse uh, verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men, which we do all the time, don't we not? The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. 
Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. God is saying his testimony is true. Uh, the witness of, of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, the power and the communication of the Spirit affirm that this news is true and trustworthy. Moses was telling us the truth. God can be trusted. Uh, but, but we don't just see here that, that we're to trust God because he's him alone because he's trustworthy. Uh, remember what John says. The only way that you can be saved is through Jesus. He's the one true and living God. This plays out here in this this passage as well. We need to trust God and Him alone because He can be trusted. But also what we see in this passage is that we're to trust God and Him alone because other gods can't be trusted. Look at how this shows up in this passage. Look over in verse 30. Remember what we, we saw initially as it was coming on that Rachel, as they were leaving, she steals the household gods of of Laban. And in verse 30, uh, Laban brings it up. He says, Now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why would you steal my gods? Now, think, think about that. A god can be, can be stolen? This woman had the power to overcome Laban's gods by sneaking into his tent, picking them up, and taking them away. What does that say about Laban's gods? But not, not just that. Laban's in need at this point. Where are my gods, he says. Why did you take them? Where are they? Jacob says, I don't have them. He didn't know. Look around and go find them. Well, what does it say? In verse 33 and following. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. He went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not the Lord, my Lord be angry, that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Remember, here, Laban's trying to find his gods. They can't communicate or do anything. What keeps them from communicating is just someone sitting on them. The picture here is if, if Rachel just is able to sit on your gods the whole time, were they under the camel seat mumbling, Laban, we're here. God is trying to make a mockery of Laban's gods here. A woman. Remember, I'm not disparaging women in this culture and perspective that a woman would do this and have the ability to do this reflects even poorly on there. Even if it was the rock, if he was sitting on the gods, what is that going to tell you? The rock's more powerful than your god? Great. Well, anyway, uh, she... Laban's gods do not have the ability to communicate and they do not have the ability to overpower even Rachel 
in order to come and communicate and talk to Laban in his time of need. How does that contrast with the God of Israel? With the God of Jacob? Who when he sees pain and suffering and hurt and injustice, in light of his promises, he enters into their struggle. And in fact, he has so much power, he just has to command Laban, stop. And what does he do? He stops. These gods cannot be trusted. In Laban's time of need, he searched and he searched and he called out and he could not find them. They could not speak to him. They could not communicate to him. They could not help him. Other gods cannot be trusted, no matter how many of them you have. The one true and living God can be trusted. These others cannot. They have no power. But if we're to trust in God because He can be trusted, we're not to trust in these other gods because they can't be trusted, then wouldn't it also show us in this passage then it really doesn't make any sense to trust in other gods, right? But what's What's Rachel doing? What is Rachel doing in this passage? Do you you remember? She's the one who stole these gods. Let's think back to what Rachel's experienced so far. In verse 14 and and to 16, when Jacob's approaching Rachel and Leah and saying, let's leave and go back to the promised land. Rachel and Leah answer him and said, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as father, foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So they've seen Laban's living out his, his obedience and his following his gods. How? By mistreating them. He's not been a father to them. He's treated them as foreigners and he sold them. He did not provide and care for them. But how has the God of Israel responded? What did, what did they even say? What he has taken away from our father is now ours and our children's. God has acted and worked in Rachel and Leah's life, providing for them as a father in a way that Laban never did. They acknowledge that. They see that. Uh, it, it, it goes on with what they, they say. They make this decision to say, we're going to leave our gods, our father, and our land and go with you and do what your God has said. They've made this decision in light of what we're seeing, the faithfulness of this God and what we've experienced here. He's a good and trustworthy and providing God. We're going to go. Jacob, we're going to make this decision to give our allegiance to him and leave and go. Remember all that Rachel's seen up to this point. But for some reason, here she begins to trust in the God and trust and obey the God of Jacob. But she can't let go of these foreign gods. In verse 19, it says she snuck in and she stole her, her father's idols. And over, we see in the passage over and over again, she's so intent on clinging to him and holding to him that even when he comes to search for him, she hides him. 
One, she doesn't want to get caught because Jacob makes this rash vow that, oh, whoever has them will die. But she wants these gods. In fact, what we'll see later on as uh, the story unfolds later when they're getting ready to further go into the promised land, one thing Jacob says to all who are traveling with him, get rid of your foreign gods. That means that Rachel and others with her also brought their gods with them. Why? Well, this is what was in her mind. Uh, a lot of what happened during those times is whenever someone was leaving their, their family and their household, they would take their, their household gods with them, the gods of their father, to be with them, to keep them safe, to provide for them on their journey. So that if they were away from their household, they knew and they could hope and trust that their gods would be with them. Here, Rachel, even though she's beginning to make these steps forward to trust and depend on the one true and living God, she cannot let go of these other gods that she's rested and depended and trusted in. It's like she's struggling to wonder, can I really trust the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? I've been with these gods so long. I I, I just don't want to let them go. I got to bring them with me. They got to come along with me. Now, we may think, well, sure, maybe she was worshiping after these these little gods, but but we don't do that, right? We don't worship false gods and idols. I mean, in the scriptures, they talk about people worshiping Baal or building these big, huge gods that they would bow down and worship to. We We wouldn't do something so... So foolish. We've advanced, haven't we? We know there's not any other gods. But it's interesting. There was uh, this article that I was reading this week that in in France, right now, France, which is considered one of the most uh, secular nations in the world, right now in France, there is one clairvoyant for every 600 French people. There seeing people in France in droves seeking out clairvoyance and omens and fortune tellers and getting into the occult and Ouija boards and all of this stuff. To to give you an idea, estimates are there's one pastor for every 550 people in America. That's the same amount of, almost the same amount of clairvoyance there are in France right now. Because what they're saying is that... uh, They did these surveys. 80% of the people in France who for the longest time had put their hopes in science now are coming to the place where they're saying, I don't know that science has the answers to the big questions in life. So the religion and the hopes that they were clinging to of secularism, secularism and science are failing them. It's not providing like I thought it would. And so I got to go to something else. But maybe you're like, you know what? I never look at the horoscope section in the back of the paper. I've never visited Madame Toussaint and her fortune teller place up there on Airing House or wherever it may be and go in for somebody to tell me my fortune. I'm not trusting and relying on other things. Well, it's interesting. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading about the Cubs when they won the, the World Series. And one of the big things that was talked about was this curse and some goat. And a curse of the Cubs. And, and when the Cubs won and they were coming down to game seven, there were tons of people who they actually went out into graveyards 
and turned on the Cubs game and the radio on, on the gravestones of their, their friends and their family who had died and who hadn't made it. People made pilgrimages to the, to the stadium after the, they had won the game and were lighting candles in remembrance and recognition of their fr- friends and family who hadn't made it and saying they're, up, they're smiling now because the Cubs finally won. It's as if their hopes and their dreams are around this baseball team. And now that the Cubs have finally won the championship, there's, there's a place for hope and they can rest in their life. But no, never, right? You would never cling and look to a, something as foolish and silly as a baseball team or a football team to provide hope and significance for you in your life, would you? Or do we do stuff like this all the time? It doesn't matter if if the idol is called Baal or Gog or Odin or Zeus or Cubs or the Wolfpack or Jason Schubert. As I look to my own agendas and the things that I'm resting and relying on, when we begin to look into our hearts and what we cling to, and we hope in, and we rest in? How would you answer questions like like this? What desires do you serve and obey? That may be insight into what might be idols in our hearts, in our lives. In whom or what do you place your trust? What do you turn to or seek when things are getting tough and difficult? Where do you go for, for refuge? Who is your protector? You see, the heart of Rachel isn't, and her struggles aren't that much different from your struggles and mine. What God is trying to tell us, though, and show us is that those things will not help you. They're, they're not even mumbling. They're up underneath somebody's rump And they can't help you or do anything. They have no power. God says, but look what I've done. I've entered into your world. I've come and I've died and I've saved you. Trust in me. Last night we watched a Charlie Brown Christmas. And it's interesting, Linus, I don't know if you've ever know much about Linus. Linus always has his little security blanket with him wherever he goes. He's never really seen without this security blanket. But in the in the middle of the the play when Charlie Brown gets so frustrated and he wants to know what the true meaning of Christmas is, Linus says, "Oh, well Charlie Brown, I'll tell you." And he goes out with his blankie in the middle of the stage and he he begins to tell the story of of the angels appearing. And the angels as he recounts it, they say, "Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of joy." For unto you is born this day in the city of David, the baby who is Christ the Lord. And as Linus says, fear not, he drops the blanket. And for the rest of the speech, he's not holding on to the blanket anymore. As he recounts about God's faithfulness to enter into our world to redeem and to save. That's what Moses is saying here. Let go of the blanket. Let go of the gods. Let go of the cubs. Let go of yourself and cling to me, the one true and living God 
who redeems and acts and saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are true. You are living. You are active. We can trust You. You know our hearts. You know how we struggle. Move us to cling in faithfulness and dependency upon Jesus Christ, the One who has come to redeem and save us. It's in His name we pray. Amen.